Hi, my name is Saul, and this is the story of London, the podcast that tries to tell the history of the city of London like a narrative tale. It takes the slow road to explain how London became as it is today, and tries its best to guide you through the twists and turns of the past. While I am a historian and I adore history, the aim of this podcast is, as always, to try and create an interesting narrative. I do not know if I always succeed in the interesting part, but I do try. We have reached some of the most crucial years in London's history, 1189 to 1191, years which were to see the creation of the position of the Mayor of London. But in this era, centuries before democracy was ever conceived of, in the sense we understand it, how did this position come about? Well, it wasn't simple. In fact, it was so complicated, the explanation has to be broken down into many parts. In chapter 74 of the story, we had to explain the exact way the reign of King Henry II ended, the political inertia and unusual circumstances that led to the elevation of that most useless of kings, Richard I, to the throne of England. In chapter 75, we covered merely the first few months of the reign of Richard, as the era around his coronation, and how that seemingly celebratory event had caused London to turn on itself and to unleash a wave of anti-Semitic fury across the city, We left the tale last episode with the city still recovering from this and trying to come to terms with the fact that cases of mass murder had just taken place on its streets and seemingly no one was being punished. And now we come to chapter 76, where we need to follow the utter carnage Richard I caused in just one year as he decides to go head off on crusade and leaves behind an unstable political situation so bad, it's going to see London facing an army at its gates, demanding the city lets them in within less than 12 months. And it's the story of the rise and fall of one of England's most hated political figures, and it's about all the information we need in order to make sense of why the first mayor is such a big thing for London. So, make yourself comfortable, And welcome to chapter 76 of the story, The Tyranny of Lesser Men. Please understand, in writing this episode, I've used and referenced about a dozen books and countless papers, and nothing herein contained is anything more than a narrative summation of the work of greater masters of history than I. I just hope that I do their work justice, and I will be forgiven when I simplify things too much. With that in mind, we begin where we left off. King Richard of England was newly appointed to the throne, but he had 99 problems and the crusade was not one. Where to start with his 99 problems? Well, let's just begin with his private life, because that's a decent place to begin showing just how complicated Richard's life was becoming. So let's go back in time a single year. 
Back then, Richard was holding the title of Duke of Aquitaine and king's son most likely to rebel against his father. He was also at the time engaged to the sister, the half-sister, of the new French king. King Henry II of England had decided to secure his borders and arranged for Richard to be betrothed to Princess Elise of France. Only his son Richard now didn't want to marry Princess Elise of France. He didn't want to be subservient to King Philippe of France. Sure, he had been his bosom buddy back when he was Prince Richard seeking to undermine his father. But now he was ruler of his father's vast domains, he rather liked his independence and he did not want to have Philip to have one over him. Richard was after a new bride. So how could he get a bride without causing great offence to the King of France? That's Richard's first dilemma. Now Richard also wanted his domains to be secure while he was away. He was fairly sure that he would not be attacked when he was gone because men on crusade could do so with a papally enforced ruling that basically said attacking the lands of those on holy crusade was a seriously bad show. But he also wanted a regency council running his lands while he was away so he decided to kill several birds with one big stone. As 1190 began on the 2nd of February, Richard was in Bruys in Normandy and there he summoned his family to him, which meant he was summoning Queen Eleanor of Equitaine, his mother, his younger brother John, who even though he was a prince was referred to as a count at the time due to his recent marriage to a rich widower. He summoned his intended, Princess Elise of France, and he summoned his bastard half-brother. Archbishop Geoffrey, as well as a host of other bishops. And here Richard adjusted the status quo, hoping for what would be the best solution to allow him go away with some peace of mind. Now, the first significant status quo change was that Princess Elise seems to have been placed under armed guard in Rouen, where she was effectively to become a prisoner, a hostage, so that you know, when he did inform the King of France that he wasn't going to marry Elise, eh, the King wasn't going to do anything rash because he still held his sister. Ah, romance. After decreeing that, Richard then gathered the family together in the Norman town of Nonacourt. Richard was worried his baby brother John and half-brother Geoffrey would cause mischief while he was away in the Holy Land. He had both his brothers swear oaths that they would stay out of England for three years, which he figured allowed him more than enough time to go sail to the Holy Land, have his crusade and return home. Both brothers, no doubt complaining, complied with this demand. But Richard's mother, Queen Eleanor of Aquitaine, felt the ban upon her youngest son, John, was unjust. She'd objected at the time and did not stop advocating her youngest son's case. Eventually, Richard relented in the face of his mother's complaints and John was allowed to go to England. Oddly enough, Richard was correct in his misgivings. Prince John was in all ways an untrustworthy little shit. And please note, Queen Eleanor had not advocated for the ban to be lifted on his half-brother Geoffrey, and so only Prince John could return to England. 
Meanwhile, you may remember that last episode I said that in their final meeting together, Richard and King Philip of France and his late father Henry II of England had all agreed that they would all jointly go on crusade together in Lent of 1190. With all that was going on, Richard didn't look like he was going to be ready, so he actually then left to meet with King Philip of France, and it was agreed they should set off in July. So that was what King Richard was doing. Meanwhile, back in England, well, there were issues. The sudden pogrom against the Jews of London had spread across the rest of England, and had by now reached the north. This explosion of hatred and bigotry approached its zenith with the massacre of York. As in London, the Jews of York had fled from the baying mobs of locals and had found safety in the king's castle. In this case, a place called Clifford's Tower. Here, however, they had been burned to death. This event, by the way, goes down in history. It is the first time a massacre of Jews is referred to as a holocaust. The attack upon the Jews of York and their mass murder, while a crime in itself, was now compounded by this seemingly bigger crime of the time. Somebody had just attacked the king's castles. This horrendous massacre and erosion of royal authority could not be tolerated. And as such, William Longchamp, the Chancellor of England, travelled north to find and punish the perpetuators of this deed. Now, he had the authority to do this because the royal justice or justicar of the south of England, William de Mandeville, had died. And he actually had no straight heir, and as such, the de Mandeville line effectively died out. And for those who are regular listeners, yep, this is where they go. But the side effect of de Mandeville's death was that William Longchamp had now basically taken the powers of Justicar that de Mandeville held. So he wasn't just Chancellor of England, he was one of the two justices of the realm. And in travelling north to sort out the events in York, he was going to meet the northern-based justice of the realm, Hugh de Pusset, the Bishop of Durham and the power in the north of England. Many of those who had murdered the innocent Jews of York had been associates and friends of Bishop Hugh, and so William Longchamp used this event as an excuse to undermine the bishop's stranglehold on power in the region and ordered his arrest. Bishop Hugh was able to buy his freedom by paying off in the major currency of the time, castles, and arranging hostages to guarantee future good behaviour, but he was then arrested and incarcerated again by Longchamp's brother, Osbert. This left William Longchamp in sole charge of the government of England. Not only was he chancellor, he was also acting justicar, and from June in 1190, he'd been appointed a papal legate at King Richard's behest. He was king in all but name. He certainly made the most of this power. William of Newborough, a writer at the time, commented that, quote, The laity found him more than a king, the clergy more than a pope, and both an intolerable tyrant, unquote. Longchamp took his duty seriously, perhaps too seriously. 
he began to progress around the realm like he was royalty, travelling with a squad of armed henchmen. And he decreed that all the fortresses under his direct control, aka royal fortresses, were to be expanded and strengthened. And this included the Tower of London. Now, Longchamp's changes to the tower hit differently to all the previous expansions of it. For many historians, Longchamp's changes were the first of a series that sought to turn the White Tower of London into an actual fortress complex, expanding it westward. Longchamp's additions were profound. During this construction period, the area covered by tower precincts was doubled in size. Newer and deeper ditches were dug in the areas surrounding many of the buildings, and all of this was rather upsetting to the residents of London. The moat of the fortress carried on to the north and west of the buildings, and in order to make it work, the diggings breached London's walls in the northeast corner, and basically it placed itself within the walls of the city, so to speak. This was new. It was also during Longchamp's expansion that a major construction was added, what is today known as the Bell Tower. Now, there were complaints from the Londoners about it, but what could they do? Longchamp was the power in England, and as well as that, only a few months before, residents of London had had to flee to the White Tower to survive unruly and criminal other residents of London. No, they could not object to these expansions. It is worth remembering here and now that we do have a problem trying to work out the events of this time period. This era is fundamentally a mythic one. The nation wasn't just inventing this grand myth of King Richard the Lionheart. At a local level, it is the era where we see the homespun mythos of the figure of Robin Hood emerge. The complex interplay between the loyalists to Richard, uh, William Longchamp and his policy of crippling taxes to pay for the king's extravagant wars, the policy of selling off the posts of shireys or sheriffs of the nation, the nationwide network of tax collectors, the impact of the king's brother John, the years where the king was missing from the kingdom, and this erosion of royal authority, this all combined together to make an era that gave birth to the stories of Robin Hood and the adventures in Sherwood Forest. And that is all wonderful nonsense. But in reality, England, and by extension London, was facing a much more pragmatic and harder time of it. And there were many problems, and they all stemmed from King Richard. He had allowed Longchamp become the sole power in the land. And Longchamp was now supposedly hiring an army of mercenaries from abroad to enforce his will and was continuing to extract punitive taxes to finance not only the crusade, but his own rather extravagant lifestyle. Now, was King Richard worried about this? In truth, not at first. King Richard and his mother were concerned principally with the fact that King Richard had no direct heir. In the event of his death on the Crusades, well, there were three possible candidates to replace him on the throne. The first in line, technically, was a young man called Arthur, the son of his older brother, Duke Geoffrey of Brittany. Arthur of Brittany 
was only three years old, however, and was being raised by his mother, the Duchess Constance. And she was as hostile as hell towards Richard. And then there was the king's younger brother, who was second in line to the throne, Prince John. And then finally, there was the Archbishop Geoffrey of York, who was an archbishop, and he was also a bastard. And that traditionally meant he wouldn't have been in line for the throne. But hey, things have been wild lately, so you never know. As such, Richard needed a wife. And since he wasn't going to marry Princess Elise of France, well, to cut a long and very convoluted story short, because it has nothing to do with London, Queen Eleanor decided that their best bet was to find a bride for him from the Kingdom of Navarre, a local Spanish princess called Berengaria. All of which is a nice way to say that right now, the king and his mother, Queen Eleanor of Aquitaine, were not at all concerned about events in England. What they were concerned about was Richard gathering up his army so he could march to the Holy Land with King Philip of France, while at the same time trying not to annoy King Philip of France by telling him that he's put his sister to one side and was currently keeping her locked up for as long as possible so he wouldn't attack, while sending his mother off to Navarre to pick up his real bride-to-be, bring her to him and then obviously marrying her. That was what was on the king's mind. So on the 4th of July, 1190, Philip and Richard, their flags flying, set off at the heads of their vast crusader armies, aiming for the Holy Land. As Richard marched south, however, Queen Eleanor decided to send her son Prince John to England just to keep an eye on Longchamp. And in late summer 1190, the records appear to show that having done that, the elderly queen set off, crossed the Pyrenees, collected Princess Berengaria, then recrossed the Pyrenees, and then took her to meet Richard and his army when they reached Sicily. Meanwhile, John had arrived in England and saw instantly that Longchamp was A, the absolute authority in the land, and B, exceptionally unpopular. So John decided to set himself up as the leader of the opposition to Longchamp. There was a whole bunch of powerful men in England who now resented the grand and imperious way Longchamp had been acting over the last few months. And remember, all of this had only started in October 1189, and we're talking about July-August in 1190 now. So John acted quickly, courting the Chancellor's opponents, and everyone was loyal to King Richard. Of course they were. It was just that many felt that the man he had left in charge was a bit of a dick. By doing this, Prince John was presenting himself as the people's champion and was steadily building up his own base of political power to rival that of the Chancellor. News of this was filtering back to Queen Eleanor as she made her way through to Italy, and she and her people quickly informed King Richard of the developing confusion in England and highly fraught political tensions. She apparently was especially dismayed by Longchamp having removed any and all checks and balances upon his power, and had, after all, very quickly consolidated all power seemingly into himself. She advised the king of his worries, and Richard had agreed to send the Cornishman Walter of Constance to England. Now, Walter was the Archbishop of Rouen, and had a long history of service to the dynasty. By all accounts, he was smart, scholarly, devious as a fox, 
and a very experienced political operator. He'd been the Bishop of Lincoln until 1184, and he was a trusted man to handle the situation, it was felt. Walter, however, was a loyalist to the dynasty of Henry II, so his first response, without really getting to know the situation on the ground, had been to automatically narrow his eyes and inwardly designate Longchamp as the real enemy here, and apparently secretly advised Prince John to raise baronial support against the Chancellor. The situation had actually become suddenly so tense that Queen Eleanor of Aquitaine only spent four days in Sicily with the king before deciding that if Archbishop Walter couldn't handle things in England, she'd better be in Normandy overseeing this situation. So what of this great crusade then? The Third Crusade was on paper, while not as widespread as the massive recruitment of the Second Crusade, this one was a tad more organised. It was led by three kings, and the combined weight and power of these three kings made the Third Crusade the powerhouse crusade. I mean, you had King Richard of England, but don't forget, most of his lands were in the west of France. You had Philip of France, who ruled effectively the east of France. And above all, they'd been joined by the mighty, wily, and all-powerful Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa. Effectively, the lands these three kings controlled actually represented the ancient Frankish kingdoms of Charlemagne, and this symbolic force was marching to retake Jerusalem, and that was their goal, retake the holy city. So how did this massive and brilliant crusade go then? Well, it was a failure. In many ways, only two crusades ever actually worked, the first one and the sixth one, and the rest were just varying degrees of a complete pig's ear. But at least the Third Crusade looked impressive. Now things started to go wrong with the German force of crusaders. Frederick Barbarossa ran his crusading army very strictly, and while he demanded a lot of money from the Jewish residents of the Holy Roman Empire before he had left, he'd remembered the wave of anti-Semitic attacks that had swept the region during the First and Second Crusades, and he could see what was going on in England, so he made sure the Jewish populations were well protected, and then marched his massive army down through the Balkans, then into Byzantium, and then into Turkey. The initial battles against the Muslim forces saw great victories for the elderly emperor, but while crossing a river, his horse slipped, he was smashed against some rocks, and he drowned. Most of this vast army returned home at this happening, but a few carried on under the command of Barbarossa's son and Duke Leopold of Austria. Oh, and they boiled the body of the dead emperor so the flesh would be removed, in order that his bones could be carried onwards to be buried in Jerusalem. Just a nice, grim little feature there. As always, dear listener, the exact sequence of events and sheer number of things that are happening during this time would take a good few hours to explain fully and do them justice. So once again, I'm urged to remind you that this narrator simplifies these moments so as to speed the tale along and return back to London. To cut a long story short, Richard's journey on the crusade was eventful. Richard arrived in Sicily. He found the ruler there had actually imprisoned his sister, Joan. He had a fight won the fight and freed her. He then informed King Philip that he wasn't going to marry King Philip's half-sister Elise. 
they didn't have a fight, but King Philippe was really, really pissed off and set off ahead of him. Didn't want to hang around with Richard anymore. Organising his own fleet now, Richard then sailed for the Holy Land, but ran into a storm, but managed to survive but lost the ship carrying his sister he'd rescued from Sicily and his new bride-to-be, and a treasure ship filled with the cash he'd just raised from England. But then he found they had been recovered on Cyprus, alive, well and intact. So then he went to Cyprus, and then he had a fight with the ruler of Cyprus, and then he took Cyprus, and then finally reached the port of Acre, where the King of France and the remaining forces of the Holy Roman Empire were besieging the Muslim defenders. Richard started bossing people around, but he got the attacking forces organised, we'll give him that, and about a month later, the port of Acre fell. A great victory for the Crusaders. The victorious commanders, Philip of France, Richard of England and Aquitaine, and Leopold of Austria, flew their pennants and flags above the newly liberated port. Seeing the Duke of Austria's flag fluttering alongside the standards of two kings, however, enraged Richard. He ordered it to be torn down and flung into a filthy moat and made disparaging remarks about the presumption of Leopold. The Duke of Austria was deeply offended at this and withdrew from the crusade and took his men and swore vengeance. Richard then fell out with Philippe some more, and so Philip now having been feeling genuinely betrayed by Richard and also suffering from a raging case of malaria, used that as an excuse to also withdraw from the crusade, leaving with a lot of his massive crusading force. Supposedly, what had been the full power of three mighty kings was now reduced to just one mighty king and a few thousand left over from the other's forces. The victory at Acre also saw Richard show that his idea of chivalry and others' idea of chivalry were very different things. Richard sent word to the Muslim emir, Salah ad-Din, and told him to come surrender to Richard, otherwise he would kill all the Muslim prisoners he now held. Salah ad-Din refused, and Richard coldly and calmly ordered the mass beheadings of about 3,000 Muslims, in an act that led to him gaining a new nickname, one that was separate from Richard the Lionheart or Richard Yes and No. To the Muslim world, he became known as Malik Rick, Evil Richard. Meanwhile, while this was going on back in England, the Cornishman, Walter, remember him, the Archbishop of Rouen, he'd returned to England while Richard was playing silly buggers, only to find and really properly assess the, the political chaos. Now, there is no way I'm going to do justice to the intricate and labyrinthine political situation in England he discovered. My aim here is to tell the story of London, and as such, I'm just going to grab the headline description of events in the rest of England. Put simply, Archbishop Walter turned up with the blessing of the King and Queen Mother Eleanor, looking to work with Chancellor Longchamp on an equitable basis. He did not reveal that he had orders to supersede him should the need arise. Chancellor Longchamp at first found the Archbishop seemed to be quite reasonable, and the Archbishop realised that maybe he shouldn't have been so supportive of Prince John, now it seemed Longchamp's side of the story. The Archbishop bias in this seems to have been based on a simple understanding on his behalf. 
he saw that the Chancellor was acting in the King's best interest. He was doing it badly, stupidly even, but the Archbishop could see that the Chancellor's heart was in the right place. And as such, now to the Archbishop of Rouen, Prince John was simply looking to serve himself. However, for those opposed to Longchamp and thus supportive of the Prince, this made Archbishop Walter suspect. And it is now, at this time, that the belief that Richard would not return from Crusade began to reach its zenith, mostly because Prince John was supposedly pushing this belief and the fact that, you know, that would mean they'd either have to choose a three, four-year-old boy to be king or they could always choose me. John capitalised on Longchamp's unpopularity and seemed to be growing in power with the potential hint that this could be his attempt to grab the throne. Archbishop Walter managed to handle the situation and by the end of July, beginning of August that year, he got the two sides to reach a settlement. Prince John was to surrender back the castles in England he had taken. No, give them back. Good. And Chancellor Longchamp said he'd support John's succession over that of Arthur of Brittany. See? Everything solved, right? No. John clearly saw Longchamp's ineptitude as the key to him gaining power, so he continued to intrigue against Longchamp, and was even going so far as to begin to insinuate that Longchamp was plotting to seize the crown for himself. Meanwhile, back on the crusade, and please remember we're still in the year 1190, on the 22nd day of August that year, King Richard left his new Spanish bride, Berengaria, and his sister Joanna back in Acre and marched out to claim the thing he wanted more than anything else in the world, Jerusalem. King Richard was up for this and even with dwindling provisions and dwindling numbers of men, he marched south. And on the 7th of September, he won a great victory over the forces of Saladin on the plains of Asurf, by all accounts, fighting with a terrifying ferocity. And then on the 9th of September, his forces took the port of Jaffa, modern-day Tel Aviv. But just as he was gaining some momentum, Richard was struck down by a raging case of malaria, followed by a raging case of dysentery, and he fell seriously ill for weeks. Meanwhile, back in England, with royal authority kind of breaking down as Prince John, Archbishop Walter and Chancellor Longchamp all running around and waiting for the other guy to make a move or to do something stupid, somebody else did something really stupid. And what caused it all was King Richard's bastard half-brother, the former Chancellor of England and now designated Archbishop of York, Geoffrey. We just mentioned Geoffrey, we last saw him swearing to stay out of England for three years, but with everything that was going on across the Channel, he decided to just return home and take up his post in York. However, William Longchamp, remembering what Geoffrey had sworn to Richard, was determined to keep him out of the kingdom. He asked Baldwin VIII, the new Count of Flanders, to prevent Geoffrey from leaving. And he also ordered the Sheriff of Sussex to try and intercept the Archbishop of York so that if the Archbishop's ship arrived off the coast, the Sheriff would make sure he'd be forbidden from stepping onto land. 
Alas, on the 14th of September, Geoffrey, the Archbishop of York, landed at Dover, and he was immediately confronted by William Longchamp's sister, Richent. She was the wife of the man who ran Dover Castle, you see. Lady Rinchant was backed up with a big group of knights loyal to her husband and immediately demanded that Archbishop Geoffrey swear an oath of fealty to the king and to her brother, the Chancellor. Now, Archbishop Geoffrey refused, saying he'd already sworn an oath of fealty to the king and he had no intention of swearing one to the bloody Chancellor. And then, very intelligently after saying this, the Archbishop sought sanctuary in the Benedictine Priory of St. Martin at Dover. All good. He had holy sanctuary. The next day, however, Lady Richard turned up with a garrison of soldiers from Dover Castle and besieged the Archbishop inside. She was not tolerating having her brother disrespected like that. And eventually, after a few days, in a gross violation of the church's right of sanctuary, she ordered her men to storm the priory and the Archbishop of York was dragged by the arms and legs from the altar where he'd been actually assisting at mass and pulled through the mud to Dover Castle and locked up. When news of this got out, well, it's like the Thomas Beckett situation again, isn't it? Only the offender this time was not someone as powerful as Henry II. Light blue touch paper and stand well back. The nation responded with fury. And now Archbishop Geoffrey was the champion of the church, not the half-brother of a king who had sneaked back into the country against the king's orders. William Longchamp was held fully responsible for all of this. And even if, as he pointed out, he wasn't even there and had nothing to do with it, no one believed him or accepted it. Longchamp ordered the immediate release of the Archbishop of York, but it was too late. Bishop Hugh of Lincoln excommunicated Longchamp's brother-in-law, who ran Dover and Castle, and Longchamp's sister. And when the newly released Geoffrey reached London, he was met by a triumphant procession through the streets, as great as anything Thomas Beckett had met. London had clearly had enough of this chancellor. And to cheering crowds, the Archbishop of York was paraded as the city became once again the litmus test for the nation. Prince John instantly pressed home his advantage, claiming to be the champion of the oppressed and the righteous. He rallied William Longchamp's enemies, who were way too numerous to mention now, but included Geoffrey of York and also Hugh de Poussaint at his own castle in Marlborough. And then he marched via Oxford to Reading. Here, he and the Archbishop of Rouen issued writs for the Great Council to assemble that October to talk about Chancellor Longchamp. Deserted by all his supporters, Longchamp fled to the Tower of London and barricaded himself inside. Archbishop Walter ran the council where the many complaints against the Chancellor were listed. And John led an armed force towards London. The city found itself in the middle of all this political nonsense. In the Tower of London sat William Longchamp, Chancellor, Justicar, and Richard's authority in England, who ordered them to hold the walls of the city and close the gates to the forces of Prince John. And outside the city, was an armed force led by John 
asking the citizens to just open the gates and let them in. And London? London sided with John. And to popular acclaim, Prince John of England was met in the city by a deputation led by a new leading citizen. The city's first mayor. And more than that, this first mayor wasn't just leading the citizens of London. Very specifically, and in all ways, every single eyewitness at the time said this new mayor was leading the commune of London. London was a commune again. That, that was a title that held when they'd been granted it by King Stephen, as we described back in chapter 62 of the story. A status which, when they had it last time, they felt granted them the right to choose the king. When was commune status granted? Who by? Where did the position of mayor come from? Who created that? Who was this first mayor? How did this happen? When did this happen? With all that is going on in the Holy Land and across England right now, what the hell had been going on in London? Their important question. So important that I'm going to give them their own entire chapter. And so we're going to end this chapter here. And coming out as soon as I can, chapter 77 of the story of London. The rise of the first mayor. As we basically, after doing a, this whole chapter where we looked at what was going on around the rest of the country, yeah, this next one, it's nothing but London. Thanks for listening. I hope you could follow along. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll see you in the next episode. All right, bye. Bye.